A lot of times when we talk about the People's Republic of China, people think, oh, well, maybe you're just upset that another group of immigrants is doing better than other American immigrants. No, that's not the case. The case is really covered in Section 3 of a report by the USCC. Now, what is the USCC? This is part of a report to Congress, uh, which took place during the 117th session uh, on November of 2021. Now, this was printed for use by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. And it is available online at uscc.gov. You can look it up. It is all there. So, you know, as we get near Election Day in 2022, let's listen to what they said in 2021. China's government has developed numerous avenues which to monitor corporate affairs in the United States and direct non-state private firms and resources towards advancing the Chinese Communist Party's goals and priorities within the United States. They are already engaged in economic activity at the behest of the Communist Party. Now, within this expanded framework of uh, government control, remember, the government in China is not controlled by the people, but the Communist Party. The traditional definition of state control of an entity no longer applies here because the entity may be controlled or act on behalf of the Chinese government's interests directly, regardless of the state's formal ownership. In other words, these are shell companies. The control of these CCP firms is blurred by contrary to the precise division between the state and the non-state firms implied in corporate ownership registry, but registered to private individuals who are acting on behalf of the CCP. Historically, non-state firms have sought state investment to overcome political and regulatory barriers, so they get money to deal with politics and regulation barriers. And where does that money go? Well, now that they're registered American companies, they're able to put that money wherever they want it, into the pockets of politicians, leaders, or through their PACs and political action committees. They're able to buy property from those politicians. In some cases, able to arrange low interest loans and investments. China got caught doing this before it happened in 1994. It was called Chinagate. In fact, that led to the defeat of Al Gore in presidential elections. Gore largely lost many parts of the United States when this information was revealed. Oh yeah, he won the popular vote in some states, but even those popular vote decisions are still under contest to this day. Yes, he only won the areas where there was a very strong Communist Party influence from China. Now, under the current Secretary General of the CCP, Xi Jinping, the party has systemically expanded and its representation in corporate governance, where in traditional regulatory intervention in corporate affairs, 
occurs through the Chinese bureaucratic machines and mechanisms. Consequently, it can be impossible to identify the state of the exercise of the CCP's influence. Again, remembering that the CCP, which makes up a population of 90 million members out of a total of 1.4 billion Chinese, is the one that controls directly every action of government in China. And by reading this report from the UCC, it is clear that the United States government believes that there is a level of supplanting the role of the Chinese government agencies in market monitoring and regulatory enforcement. While it may create the appearance of better regulated markets and replacing routine bureaucratic functions of the CCP with intervention by other groups that appear to not be part of the Chinese government, those institutions are actually, in fact, according to government investigations, proven to be actually owned by the Chinese government. So the Chinese corporate law also affords the state of unique and substantial government's rights in investor, and it also imposes legal obligations to serve the state's development goals in all forms by all firms. By contrast, this is completely unheard of. The United States government can't go to an American company and say, the government needs you to do this. Every American corporate person will probably look at the government and laugh and say, wait a minute, that's not the law. You're not allowed to dictate what we can do with a private corporation. Well, unless you're a media company and you happen to be earning billions of dollars from the United States government in terms of advertising. But U.S. investors are in Chinese domestic and international entities markets are afforded minimal protections from this fact that the CCP can create companies, build funds, enter a competitive agreement with another company, and totally collapse the other firm after gaining whatever funds they wanted. And that is one issue that the U.S. government has been looking into. Now, Congress needs to direct the Securities and Exchange Commission to require that publicly traded U.S. companies with facilities in China report on an annual basis whether there is a CCP committee in their operations and summarize their actions and corporate decisions with such committees and how they are participating and have participated in American companies involved there. Congress needs to direct the Bureau of Economic Analysis at the U.S. Department of Commerce to amend the surveys of U.S. multinational enterprise activity in China to report on the presence of firms operating in China, what they are doing, and just how much of a role the CCP has in them. Because at the end of the day, the CCP has stated its goal in its last party Congress. That is, parity and domination by any and all means of the United States economy. Further, that they need to find a way to take down the USA. Yes, that's the situation we are in. A lot of people don't realize it. 
there is economic sabotage happening, and it is coming from the People's Republic of China. The world's spotlight is on the war in Ukraine, and Russian cyber attacks are making headlines. But the FBI warns that the globe's biggest hacking threat actually comes from China. Here's more. China is the world's largest malicious cyber actor. That's what FBI Director Christopher Wray said last week during a cybersecurity talk at Boston College. He says China pursues long-term goals and operates at a scale to which Russia doesn't even come close to. They've got a bigger hacking program than all other major nations combined. They've stolen more American personal and corporate data than all nations combined. And they've shown no sign of tempering their ambition and their aggression. Ray says that China's huge economy gives it tools and leverage that other countries lack, citing an example from 2020. U.S. companies operating in China were required by law to use a certain tax software. But a number of U.S. companies then discovered that malware was delivered into their networks through that software. Which gave the Chinese Communist Party access to the company's data. So what that adds up to is that by complying with Chinese laws for conducting lawful business in China, they ended up with back doors into their systems. He added that in 2021, Microsoft and other cybersecurity companies disclosed that Chinese hackers had compromised over 10,000 U.S. networks. And that's just one example of how the Chinese government is pursuing their goal to lie, cheat, and steal their way into global domination of technology sectors. Ray said that China is hiring hackers as if they were cyber mercenaries and providing them with state resources to attack the United States. Ray said in January that the FBI opens a new China counterintelligence investigation about every 12 hours, that there are currently more than 2,000 of those investigations, and that all 56 U.S.-based FBI field offices are engaged in the effort. So, you know, that was really interesting, uh, that report there from NBTTV, which uh, I often quote and look at, and if they have a problem with it, I won't use their stuff anymore. Uh, please look them up uh, online. Please go to Epoch TV, their website. Please subscribe and help them out because uh, they've been demonetized, uh, much like many of us, whenever we discuss things about the communist government of China. Republic of China or corruption in the United States government. Anyhow, let's listen to the entire uh, excerpt uh, that was that was put into that report and uh, the speech at Boston College by FBI Director Ray on uh, Christopher Ray rather on this uh, on this issue uh, of uh, China and its uh, cyber hacking programs as well as Russia and what it does. Uh, long listen, but very informative. Listen. In. As I mentioned earlier, even while we're running at full tilt against Russian cyber threats, we're also countering other nation-state and criminal cyber actors. So we're particularly attuned to lessons from the Ukraine conflict that apply more broadly. We're not the only ones. We know that China is studying the Ukraine conflict intently. They're trying to figure out how to improve their own capabilities to deter or hurt us in connection with an assault on Taiwan. So take, for example, the blended threat, where we see Russia, like China, 
like Iran and sometimes other nation states, essentially hiring cyber criminals, in effect, cyber mercenaries. We see Russian cyber criminals explicitly supporting and taking actions to assist the Russian government, as well as some just taking advantage of the very permissive operating environment that exists in Russia. In some instances, we also see Russian intelligence officers moonlighting, making money on the side through cybercrime, or using cybercriminal tools to conduct state-sponsored attacks because they think it gives them some plausible deniability or will hide who's behind it. So one key question for us these days is when do criminal actors become agents of their host government? Does money have to change hands, or is publicly pledging support to a foreign government enough? We're realizing the value of our accumulated investigative work with our partners against all manner of Russian cyber threats. That work has established connections, motives, and tactics among Russian hackers before the current crisis, and it gives us a basis for potentially holding the Russian government accountable for the actions of a Russian ransomware gang. Because we've been able to show that their government sometimes supports, uses, and protects cyber criminals. A second thing, a second broader lesson that we're thinking about in this context is the speed and scope of attribution. So how do we balance the need for speed to get to an operational level of attribution, supporting actions that we or our partners need to take next against specificity. It won't surprise you to learn that we can often figure out which country is responsible for something or even which specific intelligence service a lot faster than we can identify which individual, which human being was sitting at the keyboard. For victims that we're helping as we respond to malicious cyber activity in this kinetic, destructive context, we've found that speed pretty much trumps everything else. It's more important to them, more important for us, to get to their doorstep in an hour than it is to tell them whether we're looking at nation-state activity or cyber criminals. But it's also important to keep marching towards more specific attribution, even while we're handing off defensive information before we've built out the full picture of who's responsible. Because the broader government's response calculations for us to meaningfully degrade, disrupt, and deter a cyber adversary, we often need to be a lot more specific about who's responsible. A third lesson, or really a reminder from this conflict that has broad application, when it comes to the threat of a destructive attack, the adversary's access is the problem. That's something that we've talked about, and CISA has talked about quite a lot, but that has acquired heightened resonance lately. I say that because Russia has, for years and years, been trying to infiltrate companies to steal information. And in the course of doing that, they've gained illicit access to probably thousands of U.S. companies, including critical infrastructure. You could just look at the scope of their solar winds campaign. They could use the same accesses they gained for collection and intelligence purposes to do something intentionally destructive. And it's often not much more than a question of desire on their part. And that's why when it comes 
to Russia. These days, we're focused on acting as early, as far left of boom, as they say, as we can against the threat. That is, launching our operations when we see the Russians doing things like researching targets, scanning, trying to gain a, an initial foothold on the network, not when we later see them exhibit behavior that looks potentially destructive. As broad as Russia's potential cyber accesses across the country may be, they pale in comparison to China's. So this same reminder that this conflict has given the community about the urgency of battling adversaries at the point of access or earlier, that applies in spades when we think about how to defend against the Chinese Communist Party's potential aggression towards Taiwan. We need to study what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and learn from it because we're clearly not the only ones paying attention. Now, China is clearly a very different threat than Russia. The Chinese government is methodical, hacking in support of long-term economic goals. China operates on a scale that Russia doesn't come close to. They've got a bigger hacking program than all other major nations combined. They've stolen more American personal and corporate data than all nations combined and they've shown no sign of tempering their ambition and their aggression. Even their hacks that might seem noisy and reckless actually fit into a long-term strategic plan to undermine U.S. national and economic security. China's economy also gives it leverage and tools sway over companies that Russia lacks. For a lot of U.S. and foreign companies doing business in China, or looking to do business in China, the cost effectively amounts to a blanket consent to state surveillance in the name of security, and that's at best. At worst, they've got to accept the risk that their sensitive information may be co-opted to serve Beijing's geopolitical goals. Let me give you an example. In 2020, we became aware that some U.S. companies operating in China were being targeted through Chinese government-mandated tax software. The businesses were required to use certain government-sanctioned software to comply with the value-added tax system and other Chinese laws. But a number of U.S. companies then discovered that malware was delivered into their networks through that software. So what that adds up to is that by complying with Chinese laws for conducting lawful business in China, they ended up with back doors into their systems that enabled access into what otherwise should have been private networks. And that's just one example of how the Chinese government is pursuing their goal to lie, cheat, and steal their way into global domination of technology sectors. It's really a whole-of-government operation to steal research and proprietary secrets from U.S. companies and then undercut prices on the global market so that companies that play by the rules can't compete. That effort is not limited to cyber. Heck, I mean, we've caught Chinese agents out in the heartland of the U.S. targeting our agricultural innovation, sneaking into fields to dig up proprietary experimental genetically modified seeds. 
But China's other means of stealing technology, things like human spies, things like seemingly benign corporate transactions, often run in concert with and even in service of its cyber program. Like when the MSS recently used a human agent on the inside to enable hackers back in mainland China to penetrate GE Aviation's joint venture partner and steal proprietary engine technology. The Chinese government sees cyber as the pathway to cheat and steal on a massive, massive scale. In March of last year, 21, Microsoft and other U.S. tech and cybersecurity companies disclosed some previously unknown vulnerabilities targeting Microsoft Exchange server software. The hackers operating out of China had compromised more than 10,000 U.S. networks, moving quickly and irresponsibly to do so prior to the public disclosure of the vulnerabilities. Through our private sector partnerships, we identified the vulnerable machines and learned the hackers had implanted web shells, malicious code that created a backdoor and gave them continued remote access to the victims' networks. So, working with CISA, we pushed out a joint advisory to give network defenders the technical information they needed to disrupt the threat and eliminate those backdoors. But, some system owners weren't able to remove the web shells themselves, which meant that their networks remained vulnerable. So we executed a first-of-its-kind surgical court-authorized operation, copying and removing the harmful code from hundreds of vulnerable computers. So those back doors the Chinese government hackers had propped open, we slammed them shut so the cyber actors could no longer use them to access victim networks. So while that's another win we can celebrate, it's also a stark reminder that the Chinese government remains a prolific and effective cyber espionage threat. <clears throat> now China and Russia are not the only nation states exhibiting malicious behavior on the international stage. Iran and North Korea also continue to carry out sophisticated intrusions targeting U.S. victims. In fact, in the summer of 2020, hackers sponsored by the Iranian government tried to conduct one of the most despicable cyber attacks I've ever seen right here in Boston when they decided to go after Boston Children's Hospital. Let me just say that again, Boston Children's Hospital. We got a report from one of our intelligence partners indicating Boston Children's was about to be targeted and understanding the urgency of the situation, the cyber squad in our Boston field office raced out to notify the hospital. Our folks got the hospital's team the information they needed to stop the danger right away. We were able to help them ID and then mitigate the threat. And quick actions by everyone involved, especially at the hospital, protected both the network and the sick kids who depended on it. As I mentioned earlier, even while we're running at full tilt against Russian cyber threats, we're also countering other nation state and criminal cyber actors. So 
were particularly attuned to lessons from the Ukraine conflict that apply more broadly. We're not the only ones. We know that China is studying the Ukraine conflict intently. They're trying to figure out how to improve their own capabilities to deter or hurt us in connection with an assault on Taiwan. So take, for example, the blended threat, where we see Russia, like China, like Iran, and sometimes other nation states, essentially hiring cyber criminals, in effect, cyber mercenaries. We see Russian cyber criminals explicitly supporting and taking actions to assist the Russian government, as well as some just taking advantage of the very permissive operating environment that exists in Russia. In some instances, we also see Russian intelligence officers moonlighting, making money on the side through cybercrime, or using cybercriminal tools to conduct state-sponsored attacks because they think it gives them some plausible deniability or will hide who's behind it. So one key question for us these days is when do criminal actors become agents of their host government? Does money have to change hands or is publicly pledging support to a foreign government enough? We're realizing the value of our accumulated investigative work with our partners against all manner of Russian cyber threats. That work has established connections, motives, and tactics among Russian hackers before the current crisis, and it gives us a basis for potentially holding the Russian government accountable for the actions of a Russian ransomware gang, because we've been able to show that their government sometimes supports, uses, and protects cyber criminals. A second thing, a second broader lesson that we're thinking about in this context is the speed and scope of attribution. So how do we balance the need for speed to get to an operational level of attribution, supporting actions that we or our partners need to take next against specificity? It won't surprise you to learn that we can often figure out which country is responsible for something or even which specific intelligence service a lot faster than we can identify which individual, which human being was sitting at the keyboard. For victims, that we're helping as we respond to malicious cyber activity in this kinetic, destructive context, we've found that speed pretty much trumps everything else. It's more important to them, more important for us, to get to their doorstep in an hour than it is to tell them whether we're looking at nation-state activity or cyber criminals. But it's also important to keep marching towards more specific attribution, even while we're handing off defensive information before we've built out the full picture of who's responsible. Because the broader government's response calculations for us to meaningfully degrade, disrupt, and deter a cyber adversary, we often need to be a lot more specific about who's responsible. A third lesson, or really a reminder from this conflict that has broad application. When it comes to the threat of a destructive attack, the adversary's access is the problem. That's something that we've talked about and CISA has talked about quite a lot, but that has acquired heightened resonance lately. I say that because Russia has for years and years been trying to infiltrate companies to steal information. And in the course 
of doing that, they've gained illicit access to probably thousands of U.S. companies, including critical infrastructure. You could just look at the scope of their solar winds campaign. They could use the same accesses they gained for collection and intelligence purposes to do something intentionally destructive. And it's often not much more than a question of desire on their part. And that's why when it comes to Russia these days, we're focused on acting as early, as far left of boom, as they say, as we can against the threat. That is, launching our operations when we see the Russians doing things like researching targets, scanning, trying to gain a, an initial foothold on the network, not when we later see them exhibit behavior that looks potentially destructive. As broad as Russia's potential cyber accesses across the country may be, they pale in comparison to China's. So this same reminder that this conflict has given the community about the urgency of battling adversaries at the point of access or earlier, that applies in spades when we think about how to defend against the Chinese Communist Party's potential aggression towards Taiwan. We need to study what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and learn from it because we're clearly not the only ones paying attention. Now, China is clearly a very different threat than Russia. The Chinese government is methodical, hacking in support of long-term economic goals. China operates on a scale that Russia doesn't come close to. They've got a bigger hacking program than all other major nations combined. They've stolen more American personal and corporate data than all nations combined. And they've shown no sign of tempering their ambition and their aggression. Even their hacks that might seem noisy and reckless actually fit into a long-term strategic plan to undermine U.S. national and economic security. China's economy also gives it leverage and tools sway over companies that Russia lacks. For a lot of U.S. and foreign companies doing business in China, or looking to do business in China, the cost effectively amounts to a blanket consent to state surveillance in the name of security, and that's at best. At worst, they've got to accept the risk that their sensitive information may be co-opted to serve Beijing's geopolitical goals. Let me give you an example. In 2020, we became aware that some U.S. companies operating in China were being targeted through Chinese government-mandated tax software. The businesses were required to use certain government-sanctioned software to comply with the value-added tax system and other Chinese laws. But a number of U.S. companies then discovered that malware was delivered into their networks through that software. So what that adds up to is that by complying with Chinese laws for conducting lawful business in China, they ended up with back doors into their systems that enabled access into what otherwise should have been private networks. And that's just one example of how the Chinese government is pursuing their goal to lie, cheat, and steal their way into global domination of technology sectors. It's really a whole-of-government operation to steal research and proprietary secrets from U.S. companies and then undercut prices 
on the global market. So the companies that play by the rules can't compete. That effort is not limited to cyber. Heck, I mean, we've caught Chinese agents out in the heartland of the U.S. targeting our agricultural innovation, sneaking into fields to dig up proprietary experimental genetically modified seeds. But China's other means of stealing technology, things like human spies, things like seemingly benign corporate transactions, often run in concert with and even in service of its cyber program. Like when the MSS recently used a human agent on the inside to enable hackers back in mainland China to penetrate GE Aviation's joint venture partner and steal proprietary engine technology. The Chinese government sees cyber as the pathway to cheat and steal on a massive, massive scale. In March of last year, 21, Microsoft and other U.S. tech and cybersecurity companies disclosed some previously unknown vulnerabilities targeting Microsoft Exchange server software. The hackers operating out of China had compromised more than 10,000 U.S. networks, moving quickly and irresponsibly to do so prior to the public disclosure of the vulnerabilities. Through our private sector partnerships, we identified the vulnerable machines and learned the hackers had implanted web shells, malicious code that created a backdoor and gave them continued remote access to the victims' networks. So, working with CISA, we pushed out a joint advisory to give network defenders the technical information they needed to disrupt the threat and eliminate those backdoors. But, some system owners weren't able to remove the web shells themselves, which meant that their networks remained vulnerable. So we executed a first-of-its-kind surgical court-authorized operation, copying and removing the harmful code from hundreds of vulnerable computers. So those back doors the Chinese government hackers had propped open, we slammed them shut so the cyber actors could no longer use them to access victim networks. So while that's another win we can celebrate, it's also a stark reminder that the Chinese government remains a prolific and effective cyber espionage threat. <clears throat> now China and Russia are not the only nation states exhibiting malicious behavior on the international stage. Iran and North Korea also continue to carry out sophisticated intrusions targeting U.S. victims. In fact, in the summer of 2020, hackers sponsored by the Iranian government tried to conduct one of the most despicable cyber attacks I've ever seen right here in Boston when they decided to go after Boston Children's Hospital. Let me just say that again, Boston Children's Hospital. We got a report from one of our intelligence partners indicating Boston Children's was about to be targeted and understanding the urgency of the situation, the cyber squad in our Boston field office raced out to notify the hospital. Our folks got the hospital's team the information they needed to stop the danger right away. We were able to help them ID and then mitigate the threat. 
and quick actions by everyone involved, especially at the hospital, protected both the network and the sick kids who depended on it.